Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. We're getting to the end of uh, this particular section of Scripture where there's been this thematic development of how to live like a citizen of heaven or how to walk worthy of the gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 27. So there's this expectation that you and I would live as though our legal status, our citizenship, where we will end up forever, actually controls our behavior in the here and now. And this is often, if you think in terms of just human environment and interaction, just normal. If you were to go to over an overseas country and, and visit for a while, it probably wouldn't be a surprise to the people who live in that country that you're a foreigner, that you're not part of their culture. If you were to take away some of the more obvious things like skin color and just go over, let's say, to Europe or um, if you were to go to South America, if you were to go to some of these other cultures, you're going to see distinct cultural differences and you probably won't even catch some of them, but people will know. You, you don't belong. You're different. I don't know if you've ever heard of the criticism of Americans that were really loud I spent a summer in Ireland, and by the end of summer, I could pick out an American, no problem. It, like, you can tell Americans after you've been overseas for a while. Well, this passage is telling us that people who are actually secured in saving grace, who have the hope of heaven, have a transition within their value system, the decisions they make, the thoughts with which they engage life, so much so that he says your pattern of behavior is to be so different, it's going to be fitting with heaven, it's going to be fitting with the status as a saint of heaven, it's going to be something that's fitting with the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that saves us. He leads through then, I think maybe we could say how we relate to one another, or maybe I should say how we relate to to people around us, right? So, so he has initially the world stand firm against the, the persecution, the pressure to conform. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, as it relates to other believers, treat them as more important, more significant than you treat yourself. And then he follows through with how that looks like with Christ, that we follow the very footsteps, the pattern of life, the attitude that Christ has. And we do so for the glory of God, and you get to the end of that discussion in chapter uh, 2, verses 12 and 13, and he says this, work. The foundation of work is, for God is at work in you, to give you the desire and the ability. Last week, we, we spoke and touched on those things where the reason and the, the encouragement for us to work hard is because God is at work in us. It is one of the most encouraging thoughts that God has given us a desire for what is not native for us to desire. It's not natural for us to desire. There, you know, we get this struggle with children. They don't like certain foods. And some of it, you realize, is just like something switches. I, I was, I don't remember what the exact flavor was, but have you ever seen these little like baby foods that are pureed? And it's like, yeah, this is, this is mashed potatoes, gravy, and carrots. Like it's just like all together, and you're you're spooning this mush to these kids. And I was with someone recently, and they're giving something to their child. And I'm like, man, I, I would not eat that. I mean, you would, 
you would have to pay me good money before I would take a bite of that thing. It's almost as though as they grow up, they learn, no, I should not like broccoli. And then, then when they're four and mom's like, eat broccoli, they're, they, they don't want to eat broccoli. And then like another switch hits probably somewhere later in life. They're like, oh, I like broccoli. Well, we don't have a taste for any of God's values without the grace of God strengthening our desires. It's like the vegetable plate comes by and we'll all pass. And God works in us so that we want those things that please him. So we work, and the foundation of that work is because God is at work within us to give us the wanting and the power to do what we want to do. Or what, excuse me, what he wants us to do. So then we come into verses 14 and following where he concludes this section. And maybe I can ask this. Okay, so if we live like a citizen of heaven, if we live as someone who's walking worthy of the gospel, if I actually treat others as better than myself, if I have the mind of Christ, what will that look like? Now, if you're processing this with the Apostle Paul as he writes this for us, you realize it's going to be super expensive. What did it cost Jesus to lay down the pattern for us to follow? He died on the cross. It wasn't just merely death. It was the most significant, wretched death ever. Cost him his life. If you were to go back to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where we lift others up, serve others, and do not serve ourselves, we hold them as more significant than ourselves, that might cost you a lot as well. So how do we engage life where we have this constant battle and cost to follow Christ? Look with me at verse 14. It's not as though he even warms up. He just starts off by coming right at it. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar or offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This section, I think, develops with, with starting with this clear prohibition. And he'll lead to, to an admonition, do this. So don't do this, do this. And in the middle, he kind of sandwiches out a, a purpose for us. But let's just start with the basic prohibition. Do all things. All things without what? Grumbling or disputing, arguing, lawyering your case, pleading your cause. This is a citation uh, from the Old Testament passages in Exodus, Numbers, and, and probably a little bit of Deuteronomy as well, as Israel's coming out of the land of Egypt. What do they do in response to God's work of rescue? <laughs> they grumble and complain. And you see the apostle picking up on this thought, and in fact, you'll see that there's a couple ways in which he's, he's kind of touching hands on this Old Testament thought that God's people often struggle with God's acts because they don't fall out as much as they would like them to. So they come out of Egypt, the, the nation of Israel does, and in Exodus 16, which is, I mean, they have just come out of Egypt. 
And all of a sudden they realize they are on a camping trip and they have no food. And what would your response be if you're out in the middle of the wilderness and all of a sudden you look around and you realize that there is no refrigerator, there is no McDonald's nearby, and you have no food packed? Is, is your natural scientific mind is going to say, hmm, this is not going to go well for me and my kids. And they begin to complain. They, they begin to grumble. It's interesting, if you read that text, they start to grumble against Moses. And the, the narrative actually says they're not just complaining about Moses, they're actually complaining against God. That's not the only time Israel struggles with this. If you're to read Numbers 14 and then again Numbers 16. In Numbers 14, they send 12 spies into the land that God has promised them. Ten come back and the Bible says they gave an evil report. The land is filled with terrifying armies that will wreck us and kill our children. And the whole nation turns sour and says, God, have you brought us out here? that our children would be scattered across the promised land like prey. You read number 16, Korah and his sons rebel against the leadership of Moses just after that point. There are more times in which they complain, they're thirsty, they complain, they're hungry, they complain, they get bored of manna, they complain. If you read the Old Testament text from Exodus through Deuteronomy, you'll see that Israel struggles with complaining. So let's look again at verse 14 of Philippians. The Apostle Paul trying to bring to the, to the Philippians' mind this thought that God in the Old Testament was doing work and Israel did not find it good enough. Their response is to complain. And so he tells us, do all, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Where is Paul writing this from? Prison. Might you complain if you're in prison? And their prisons were not like ours. They were not promised three square meals a day and an hour in sun exercising. I mean, think like stuck in a cave with iron bars across the front. That was his home. If he was in prison, if he was in their house arrest, he still didn't have the freedom. He's not only in prison, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned. He's been treated like a pariah, a social... A uh, socially rejected person. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So exactly what, what do the Philippians have to be angry about? The apostle makes it clear that they're also suffering with him. right? That they're going through something similar to what he has gone through. That it's hard for them. If you come to chapter 4, verse 1. Or excuse me, verse 2. He says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, so there's some internal strife going on. If you were to continue forward and into the verses that we all appreciate, where he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he seems to indicate that there's some poverty in the community. That's what God will strengthen them to do, is be content in the middle of poverty. So there's financial struggle. There's interpersonal battles going on. There's external persecution on this church. And the Apostle Paul has the audacity to say, do all things without grumbling and arguing. So what do you do when people hurt you? What do you do when you have a disagreement with someone that makes you look bad or feel bad? Well, if you're like a normal person, you do 
one of several things that usually you argue with them, you fight your, for your cause. Maybe you go back to friends and family, you talk to them about how bad that person has treated you. You grumble. You fight. You complain. You argue. You litigate your case. It says, do all without that. Stop that. Do not argue. Do not complain at all. Who is responsible for putting you into this location in the timeline of history, this location in geography and politics, this location in terms of church family and friends and neighbors? Who is responsible for that? Who has appointed for you the spouse that you are married to? Who has given you the gift of singleness that you currently, I would say enjoy, but I'm not trying to stress the point, that you have and maybe want to get rid of? Who has called you to this situation that you rest in? Who has called you to these sicknesses and these struggles and these finances that, that currently are burden or blessing? Who has called you to this? If you read the Old Testament text, it's really clear. Israel had reasonable, in terms of human expectations, reasonable cause for frustration or argumentation at times. If you were in the middle of the wilderness desert of Judea and south of that, and you have no water, might you find that a cause to be a little bit disgruntled? And we look at them, and, and through the pages of history, we, we disconnect ourselves from the actual cost of what that might look like as you see your little three-year-old getting dehydrated, and you're wondering, what are you doing, God? Like, what? Are you good? My little baby is dying. We don't have any water. We read in like five verses, they were thirsty and complained against God. And we're like, oh, pff, losers. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Now notice, like he, he points us to concern that he would have. If we don't, if we in fact give in to disputings and arguings, look at verse 15. Do this without disputing, do this without grumbling, that you may be What? blameless and innocent children of God. His concern is not merely that complaint itself is sin, but that complaint itself is a polluting, destructive sin within the church of God. It ruins and wrecks the holiness of God's people. It, maybe we could say, ruins the blamelessness and innocence that God demands of his people. If you to read the story of Job, he was a man who was blameless. It's used several times in Scripture of people, clearly they're sinners, but the point is not they're sinless, but they have a character quality of following Scripture even when it's hard. Let me read Deuteronomy 32. This is called the Song of Moses. Moses is nearing the end of his life here, and he's giving the kind of the final song, swan song, if you will, of his ministry. Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 through 6. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now, if we just stop there, like who wants a God like that? We do. 
a God who is just and faithful, a God who cares for his people. This is Moses singing of God and his goodness. Listen then as he turns a corner and speaks of the people who complained about God. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. He's speaking of the generation after 40 years in the wilderness that have died as a judgment of God because they complained. In fact, God sends the spies into the promised land. They're there for 40 days. That's why it's 40 years of wandering. And every one of the spies, except for Joshua and Caleb, who gave a good report, and all of that generation, all of those adults that complained their children would die, all of them die. That's the generation. And God says, they're not my children. So when you come to Philippians chapter 2, and he says, don't grumble or complain so that you would not be blamed. You would not be twisted and you would be children of God. He's taken us right back to the promised land moment in which the people complained and God judges them and essentially kicks them out of the house and lets them die in the wilderness. How much does God enjoy your complaining? It's a serious indictment against God's faithfulness and his justice. He gives his care for us. So the next time you want to argue and be angry at your children, the next time you want to complain about the situation that the Lord has providentially put you in, the next time you want to gripe about someone who's hurting you spiritually, remember this verse. Do all things without grumbling and complaining written from prison by the apostle who dies for the faith, been stoned for the faith, been shipwrecked for the faith. Do all things without grumbling, grumbling and complaining. The next time you're tempted to think that your situation is hard, remember the martyrs and the Protestant Reformation who were burned at the stake while preaching the gospel to their churches. If you have not read Fox's Book of Martyrs or some of the accounts it might encourage you to know that there are godly men and women who have lived before us, who have died for the faith, and done so with faithfulness rather than complaint. To see these men write in their last hours how much they are eager to be taken back to their churches from prison in London, to be taken back to their countryside churches, to see their people one last time, even though that trip will end with them being burned, so that as the sticks are being piled up around, they can talk to their loved ones and preach the gospel one more time. The next time you complain, remember that Jesus Christ did not complain as he died for you. He uttered words like, Father, forgive. The heart of Christ was sweet, not vinegar, even while he drank vinegar for us. The reasons for the high cost. Okay, so here's what you don't do. When God gives you a high cost for following after him, here's what you don't do. You don't complain, you don't argue. Instead, I think recognizing the reason for the high cost is helpful, and that's why Paul instructs us with it. Look in verses uh, 15 and 16. 
We, we are children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you do what? You shine as lights. It's a quotation from Daniel 12.3. The, the point of lights there in Daniel's stars. It's like the night sky, this, this velvet blanket of darkness is, is interjected with bright spots of light. The Apostle Paul is using that to preach to us what the gospel living through you looks like, what, what, it, what it does to a culture around you. So what type of culture do we have? We're in the midst of a, a scoliosis culture, a crooked culture. That's the Greek word there. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crooked culture. It's twisted. We might use the, the word perverse. It, it's instead of a straight morally upright. It's a twisted, crooked culture. If you recall the, the prophetic word in the Old Testament prophets that, that is fulfilled with John the Baptist, it says, make his paths straight as he prepares for the Messiah to come. Because we live in a dark, a twisted, a corrupted culture, and the Christian is called to shine as lights against it. This might remind you of the words of Jesus Christ, and it should, that we should let our light Shine, that men might see the goodness of the Father's work in us, and thereby they would glorify whom? Christianity was never intended by God to be something done in secret. Now realize we have a Christian, excuse me, we have an ethic in our culture that Christianity is supposed to be quiet. There are two things you don't talk about in work. What are they? And we all get politics, and we all understand why religion is not to be spoken of. Because this text points out clearly why you don't talk about politics in the workplace. Politics divide. Politics show the crookedness of a crooked generation. Did I say politics? Christianity. Sorry. Politics may too, because it does reflect your belief systems. But that was not the point of the text. Look again at what this text says. It says we, we have this twisted generation, this crooked generation. We shine as lights in the world as we hold fast to the word of life. Okay, so the, the source of light, if we will, is not us. What's the source of light? What, what is the way in which you get brighter? It's not you. It's actually living by the word of life as we hold the word of life. If you, again, if you read Daniel 12, it's really helpful. Daniel 12 actually says that those who turn people to righteous will shine as stars. In other words, the point of Daniel 12 is actually a proactive gospel sharing. Those who turn others to righteousness, those are the ones that shine. So here's here's the picture then. We have a culture that's twisted and perverse. What's the Christian? He's living by the word of life. He's holding it forth. In other words, there is a cosmic conflict that God has put you on the front lines of. This is why Timothy would be called to be a good soldier. Because you and I are actually engaged in a conflict. It's a conflict of beliefs and morality. So that when you and I live as light, as we give the gospel, it inherently produces conflict. So I want you to, to put together then these two thoughts. 
His concern is that if you are a complaining, arguing culture as a church, what's going to happen when conflict is coming? You're going to avoid it. Some of you might have a personality that's common, and that is you don't like conflict. Some of you, and this is not necessarily a noble thing, like conflict. The person who's tempted uh, to not like or does not like conflict is tempted in moments when confrontation is coming at them to be quiet, to avoid conflict, to give peace by compromise. Now, the tension then in this text is to recognize Paul is not asking for us to be fighters. His concern, though, is that if we don't hold fast to the gospel, if we let go, we stop conflict. But inevitably, if we hold fast to what Christ calls us to be, if we hold on, we will be engaged in conflict. Let me just see if I can surface this by example. If I were in a, in a public college, a secular college, and the teacher was talking about morality and ethics and asking for worldview stuff, and in a public university, I said something like this, I think homosexuality is sin and God will judge it. You tell me what will happen in the classroom in the next five minutes. Do we inherently know that God's morality has not only been rejected, but is cause for conflict. So, how do you avoid conflict? And if conflict happens, let's just play that out for a little bit. How might that affect me in my grade? So, for the sake of a grade, I am being pressured, whether it's actually intended or not, I'm being pressured to keep quiet in order to get a good grade. But if I speak up and I risk a good grade, and I, in fact, let's say I get a C minus, what would my attitude be? What might I do? I might complain. You see how these are working together? How he's, he's almost unwinding the way in which we as Christians struggle living as light. If, if I know that my speaking boldly for Christ will lead to my suffering, and I really don't like suffering, then I will avoid it. But if I recognize that suffering might be the call, and I am called to pay the price of suffering, I dare not complain about it. This is what it means to live worthy of the gospel, that I would recognize being bold for Christ, being bold for the gospel, standing up for the integrity of my Savior, is in fact a call to suffer with grace. But to suffer knowing why I'm suffering. And there are people who suffer just because they're dumb. Like, like if, if you speed all the time, they might take your license away. You're not a martyr. You're dumb. Okay, like that, that, like, First Peter really makes it clear, don't suffer as an evildoer. Like that is not the Christian suffering. That's a dumb person suffering who happens to be a Christian. Christian suffering is you recognizing that to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ, to hold fast, to bring others to righteousness, is to risk suffering. And when suffering is in fact the payout 
that you get when you stand up for Christ. Don't argue. Don't complain. Don't fight against it. This is the hand of God. And when you complain, you are not complaining about the fact that your teacher gave you a C minus. You are complaining about God. But we tend to, maybe in those moments, be bold in one second and then atheistic in the next. We stand up for morality because we believe God and we believe in morality. But the next moment we act as though he is not actually king in that moment who has led us to a place of suffering. Or perhaps, like Israel, we don't believe he's righteous and faithful. And so we, we actually step into the sandals of ancient Israel, where in one moment they cross the Red Sea and their hearts swell with faith, and the next minute they're hungry and they're saying, God, what did you do? He does not stop there. He makes it harder. Have you read the rest of the text? holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, part of holding fast the word of Christ is in fact an act of both divine protection or or preservation as well as perseverance. And here I think we we have the confluence of both thoughts, right? We hold fast. Who is holding us? Who's at work in us to give us a will that will not quit Christ? God is. He holds us fast. But he doesn't hold us fast. Like we're sitting there being held by him and we're like, "Eh." it's like we hold on with arms that are weak. They could not hold to Christ in the middle of trials. And God holds us fast. But we don't like do nothing. We hold. We just have wimpy arms. He holds us fast. And Paul is encouraging the Philippians. Listen, life is hard. And sometimes good people like Yudi and Syntyche, they, they struggle to find unity and, and to find togetherness. And so he says, agree with one another. And sometimes God calls us to give up things that are pleasing to us. I mean, even something as simple as being generous in giving to the Lord's work because he calls us to is an act of trust. Our church ought to be generous with serving others who are hurting. These little costs are nothing compared to sometimes the extravagant cost of suffering through life as the martyrs in the Puritan days did or perhaps the Apostle Paul. So we hold fast. His concern is that if if they let go of the gospel to avoid suffering, they in fact might not be gospel people at all. But notice in verse 17 and 18, his concern moves to calling them to a different attitude besides grumbling and complaining. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, the picture is not hard for us to grab a hold of. Here's his life. He's getting poured out. He's dying is his point, right? Even if I die as a sacrificial offering that leads to your faith, I am what? (laughs) Like, he's not like, just don't complain. Think it, but don't say it. Like, that's not what he's saying about complaining. Rather than complaining when life is hard, what do you do? You rejoice. How? 
unnatural is that? So if someone offends me and sins against me at, her, at church, and I'm supposed to rejoice. Paul says, yeah, you read that right. I am glad and rejoice. Verse 18, likewise, you, this is an imperative, should be glad and rejoice. Now, is that really how we should act? Because I know some of you are thinking, if I was in prison, I'm not sure I would be very happy about it. If my neighbor yelled at me and told me unkind things, I'm not sure I would rejoice in it. I want you to go back to verse 18 of chapter 1. Paul, talking about his attitude about being in prison, about people preaching in a way that um, increases his suffering. He says, 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, he says. If you were to go back to verse 3, I thank God in all my prayers in remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Not only is the Apostle Paul in prison, having suffered for the cause of the gospel, he's rejoicing. He's praying. He's committed despite the fact that as a prisoner, people are doing stuff on the outside of the prison that increases his heartache. And he says, but Jesus is being preached, so I'm finding joy even in their injury to me. Is this consistent with how the apostles responded in Acts? I want you to go with me to Acts 16. If you know about Acts 16, it's the story of Paul ministering in Philippi. Paul goes to Philippi. He begins ministering. They don't like it, so what do they do with Paul? They beat him and throw him in prison. So here we find Paul in prison with a coworker named Silas. I want you to look in verse 25. About midnight, I know exactly what I'd be doing at midnight. It would not be this. I'd be sleeping. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. And doing what? And singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They weren't just singing quietly. The prison could hear them singing to God. That's pretty cool. Paul is not merely telling the Philippians to do what he does not do. He's saying, rejoice and be glad when you suffer. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 5. It's another example. I think the apostles show us the way when we suffer. In Acts 5, in verse 40, the church has been exploding in numbers. It's a church of, I think, roughly at this point, about 5,000 people. We come down to verse 40. They've been preaching. The Pharisees are not happy about this at all. 
So they yanked them in, the, the leaders of the temple yanked them in, verse 40. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And when they left the presence of the council, what were they doing? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They were yanked in because they were preaching. They were beaten because they were preaching. They walked away from getting beaten and told to be quiet, rejoicing that God, that God had considered them worthy of the honor of suffering for the name of Jesus. And then what did they do? You know that whole line about, you know what the definition of insanity is? So you have the apostles, they know very well what this is going to lead to. If they got beaten for preaching the gospel one time, what's going to happen the next time? They're going to get in prison and beaten again. And yet in the middle of this, as they're, as they're walking away, they're rejoicing. It should be then no surprise that in Colossians 1, Paul is praying for the church in Colossae saying be, that, he, that they might be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Or in 1 Thessalonians 1, be imitators of us and of the Lord for you receive the word in much affliction with joy. Hebrews 10, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. But one of the marks of someone walking worthy of the gospel is that the cost in this life, the suffering in this life, the injuries in this life are what it means to walk like Christ. And we do not navigate to the path of least resistance. We shine as lights against darkness that invariably defines us as a people heading towards conflict. Not every conflict ends in us getting stoned or beaten. Not every conflict will lead us to prison. But I, I cannot... Is anyone else disheartened by our culture? Do you think that the solution to walking in our culture is to be quiet or to shine as light in darkness? And if you do, do you think there will be a cost you might be called to pay? Absolutely. There, there can be no doubt that for the Christian who sees culture clearly, we should recognize that whether or not for a few moments the Christian culture had prominence in the United States of America, that that is quickly vanishing, and the more it vanishes, the more suffering is coming. But you and I should recognize that while God may call us to suffer at work or in our schools, there's also a sense in which Paul is not merely talking about the Philippian persecution from outside. He is concerned that Yudia and Syntyche are fighting. He is worried that some of the church is poor, and rather than being content, they're complaining. If you were to see a young child who's trying to become strong, and so he sees Arnold Schwarzenegger lift 300 pounds on the bench, and so you have an eight-year-old trying to get 300 pounds up. What would you tell him? 
start small. You work up to that. Listen, if you are someone who's constantly complaining, if you're angry at your spouse frequently, if you're hopping from job to job to job because no job is good enough, you might want to start working there on just the simple command to do everything without grumbling and complaining. If when you are, are given the opportunity to share prayer requests, it's actually more like a complaint list, that might be an indicator your heart is already a complaining heart. If you're not satisfied in your marriage and you look at your spouse as a reason to complain, you need to recognize that's actually an indictment against God. If your singleness is leading you to dissatisfaction, you're on the pathway of complaint. If you're looking at our government and last week led to lots of complaining, or if the election went the other way and it would have led to lots of complaining, you forget that not one ballot was cast without the providence of God leading it to be cast that way. We are complainers. It is a professional American hobby. And we live in a democracy where we talk about freedom of speech, and I think Christians think that means freedom to complain. If you say something unkind or unhelpful or ungodly about someone within this church, I don't think I'm saying this too strongly, you have sinned if you're not doing so for the purpose of restoration or spiritual health. We need to be people who guard our hearts, though, because when we are equipped with the thought that God has called us not to complain, but rather trust him, but he's called us to a place of conflict, we can see why complaint is such an easy temptation to give into. Because I think the two dangers is not merely complaint, but is quietness. Right? God has called me to be bold and a light, which will lead to conflict. And rather than complaint, I should Rejoice and be glad. The Apostle Paul is watching the Philippian church suffer. He is suffering. He says, I might be being poured out to the point of death on the sacrifice of growing your faith, and I am glad about my possible death. And you should be glad with me. So not only do we not complain, we need to be in the habit of rejoicing. So the next time you're suffering, the next time you're hurting, the next time you're frustrated with something in life, the next time life takes from you an unexpected toll, rejoice. God is good. He's faithful. He is in control of this. Who is navigating this course of life for his glory and your good? Always, if you're his people. If you do not know the King of Kings, if you are not rescued by his saving grace, then the security that the rest of this room should have as those who trust in Christ and know that all things are working together for good to those who love God means that you can rest in this assurance only when you love God in saving faith. In other words, there is only a small group of people who can rejoice in suffering. 
It's the people who know that after suffering is glory. And if you're at a timeline out, I, I, this is just going to be a lame illustration, but if we were to timeline out a line across this of all of eternity, the line of your life would be so tiny, so minuscule in its width, you could not see it from your seat. And some of us are trading a little bit of joy now and jeopardizing the whole timeline to come. As those who are citizens of heaven, we'd much rather leverage the microscopic line of this life for eternity. Let me encourage you. The Apostle Paul doesn't merely say rejoice, he does it. He calls us to rejoice in the suffering of this life. If God has called us to not argue, to engage in the conflict and shine his lights, and then rejoice in it, then he is going to give us the grace to do it because he is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I ask that you would strengthen our hearts to be walking in faith. Father, I think there, there are times where within the context of our community of believers here, we navigate in such a way that we don't enter into conflict and the gospel is diminished in its glory and publication. I think there are times where we complain because pursuing the gospel and living boldly for Christ has cost us something that we did not expect. Father, rather than quieting the gospel, or complaining about the suffering that it brings, would you give us the spiritual resolve to rejoice that we have been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ? Give us the eyes to see that the pattern of Christ is not merely the pattern uh, that other super, super godly people have, but the pattern for all of God's people to walk in. Lord, help us to follow after our Savior, to be willing to obey our Father, who commissions us to engage in gospel living with such faithfulness and regularity and carefulness and grace and boldness that at times the crooked world that we live in is going to be in conflict with the straight righteousness of Christ. So Lord, help us to walk faithfully, to walk true and straight and to follow after our Savior regardless of the cost. And Father, when it does cost us, when it is expensive, when it does cause pain, Help us to rest and rejoice and to be glad and to worship because you are still good even when life hurts. You are still leading us into paths that are like green pastures and still waters. You are good even when it hurts. So help us to trust you and rejoice in you and rejoice in what you're doing through us. In the name of Jesus, amen.